With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Good boys and girls, two-footed podcast on Tuesday, January 25th, brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. That's a virtual privacy network, which allows you to go online, change your location, access things like American Netflix or whatever it is you're geo-blocked from, while also keeping your data safe. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot, five-star ratings across the board. Check out LibertyShield.com and use the code EPL599 to get your first month for one quid. $5.99 off that first month, $6.99 thereafter, but no contract, no long-term commitment. Instant download to your device. Let's get using straight away. LibertyShield.com. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out HomeofHopcroft.co.uk. And finally, do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you can find on Etsy and use the codes EPL10 or RED10 to get 10% off at checkout. Right, folks, we begin on a very somber tone. At least eight people have been killed in a crush in Cameroon after the Cameroon Camorra's game yesterday. The Paul Bia Stadium was the scene. Uh, a boy of 14 is believed to be among the dead, and seven other people were also seriously injured. Horrific, horrific incident. Nobody, nobody should ever go to a football match and not make it home. And these people were just there to watch their country play excited about the thoughts of you know potentially their country winning this competition on their home turf and they'll never make it home as absolutely absolutely horrible more sad news uh wim jansen former celtic manager has died at the age of 75 it's been announced by feyenoord uh, he had been living with dementia he won the scottish league title in his only season in charge in 97-98 and stopped Rangers from winning 10 in a row. I remember when he took over and when he left, how devastated. We know didn't know who he was when he took over. He was obviously a very famous player back during his career. Um, played in two World Cup finals. Tremendous player. 
and he'd done a good job as a manager uh, with Feyenoord before taking over. But he replaced Tommy Burns, who was a legend, Celtic's first non-British or Irish manager, went on and won the title. We all loved him, and then we were all devastated when he left. But that's sad news as well. May he rest in peace. Uh, we'll stick with AFCON for the moment. Um, two games yesterday, obviously. Uh, Guinea nil, Gambia won. Players sent off on both sides. Not exactly the best game of football. Not the best advertisement for the tournament. But it is what it is. And Gambia go through. Musa Barrow with the only goal. Sam Maguire somewhere fist-pumping. Um, Guinea probably had the better of the game. But without Naby Keita, there was no real creativity in the team, unfortunately. Uh, Abdu Kamara, player linked with Liverpool, not impressive in his performance. Uh, Naby Keita massively missed by them. But um, I, I do think we saw plenty from from Gambia to be excited about, you know, especially from Musa Barrow, who look, looks a really, really impressive player. Uh, another gem discovered by Bologna, who've done such a good job in recent years at signing quality young players. In the other game, Cameroon beat Camorras 2-1. Now, it's obviously massively overshadowed by what's taken place. Uh, Carl Toko Ikambi and Vincent Abubakar with the goals for Cameroon. Yusef Machangamama. Um, I, I don't know how you pronounce his name. Sorry. Uh, he he got, gets a consolation. Now, this game is mental for a couple of reasons. Number one, Camorras have a centre-back sent off after seven minutes and have to play the rest of the game with ten men. That's bad enough. But what, what compounds it all is the fact that their goalkeeper tested positive for COVID before the game. And rather than having, you know, a backup goalkeeper available, because AFCON is, they're just, they're just man, uh, mental. They were insistent that all games have to be played. If you don't have a goalkeeper, someone else has to go on goal. So that's what happened. And a left back, Chaker Al-Hadhur, he ends up in goal. He plays the entire game in goal because reasons. What was hilarious about this is he was wearing a jersey with obviously his surname on it and the number 16, but then with the number three over the number 16 in tape. Made absolutely no sense. Absolutely no sense at all. Couldn't get a jersey made. So their first choice goalkeeper is injured. The guy who would have been stepping in has COVID. And the third keeper also had COVID. So they had to play a left back in goal. This doesn't happen in in other competitions. It just does. This doesn't happen in the Euros. This doesn't happen in Copa America. 
this only could happen at the AFCON. It's part of why it's it's such a unique competition, but it's a bit mental. And it's it's a bit unfair that this wonderful run that they've had, where they've gotten out of a group stage against all expectations, has ended in them having to play a left-back in goal and losing, in part because he's not a goalkeeper. Uh, today's games, we have Senegal against Cape Verde and Morocco against Malawi. Those are today's games. You would expect Senegal and Morocco to advance. And then tomorrow we get Mali against Equatorial Guinea. And then the big one, Ivory Coast against Egypt. Uh, and that will then set us up for the quarterfinals. Two quarterfinals already set. Burkina Faso versus Tunisia and Gambia versus Cameroon. Um, yeah, I mean, it is what it is. It's a shame about Guinea because it would have liked to see Nabi Keita do, do really well, but it wasn't to be. Uh, there's not a whole lot to talk about today, so what we're going to focus in on is the big news of the day. Watford and Roy Hodgson. Roy Hodgson is set to become the Watford manager. The man who retired at the end of last season, at the age of 74, is, sorry, he was 73 when he retired. He's now 74, is back. I would imagine what's happened here is his poor, long-suffering wife, Sheila, has had him home for the first time ever for this long and thought, you make it out and do something. Either go and get yourself an allotment and plant some vegetables or get a job or something, but get out. Can you imagine how underfo underfoot he'd be? The poor fellow doesn't know what it's like to be at home. You know, he's been working full time as a manager since the 70s. Before that, he was a player. Since the age of 18, Roy Hodgson was involved in football. I mean, that's a hell of a run. 55 years in football. So he just didn't know what it was to be at home. And his wife has discovered that having him at home is not nearly as fun as she thought it would be. So she sent him back to work. And look, we could we could mock this, we could laugh at this, but the bottom line is Roy is Roy is probably the type of manager that Watford need if they want to stay in the division. And despite the fact that he's nobody's idea of a fun appointment, and Watford certainly isn't the idea of a fun job that you would have, certainly not from the outside looking in. Hodgson does bring a certain calmness to situations. You can call it boring if you want, but it's it's a calmness where just because everything around him is pretty chaotic, he can still get on with his work and sort of block everything else out. So you look at this club under the Pozo family. They bought the club in 2012. Sean Dyche was the manager then. 
and they sacked Sean Dyche. And Dyche turned around and went to Burnley. And he's still at Burnley. And in that time, he's got them promoted, gone back down, come back up, kept them in the division, two top half finishes, got them into Europe. Dyche has done outstanding work at Burnley. And I've seen people say, oh, well, wouldn't it have been better if Watford had kept him? Because undoubtedly over the last decade... Burnley have been more successful than Watford. Watford did get to an FA Cup final, but they've been up and down and up and down and up and down. And there's been no stability at the club. Zola took over. He got 75 games in charge. Sanino took over 36. Uh, Oscar Garcia Unit, he got four. Billy McKinley, two. They're caretakers. Billy McKinley was a caretaker. I'm not sure about Oscar Garcia. Uh, Jukanovic takes over one season in charge, less than a season in charge, October to June, gets them promoted, leaves. Kike Sanchez Flores takes over one season, leaves. Masari takes over one season, leaves. Marco Silva takes over 26 games in charge. Javi Gracia takes over 66 games in charge. Kike Sanchez Flores comes back, 12 games. Hayden Mullins is a caretaker. Nigel Pearson comes in 22 games. Hayden Mullins is caretaker again. Vladimir Ivic comes in 22 games. Cisco comes in 36 games promotion. Then he gets sacked after, what, seven games of this season? And Ranieri comes in. He gets 14 games in charge and he's out the door. Now... That's a lot of managers to go through in a decade. When you consider that Graham Taylor was at Watford for a decade. And in the, what, what are we looking, 25 years between Taylor leaving and Dyche leaving, you've got 5, 10, 15 managers. Dice is number 15. Those managers, by the way, include Brendan Rodgers, Gianfranco Zola, Taylor again. Taylor again, twice, actually. But since Dice, it's just been bizarre how quickly they churn through managers. Including Hayden Mullins, who's obviously been a caretaker. They've had 15 managers in a decade. 14, pretty permanent. And Billy McKinley, I don't know. I assume he was a caretaker as well. But you could say 12 to 13 permanent appointments without looking back too much. 12 to 13 permanent appointments at the club in a decade. So this is a chaotic club. This is a very un-English club in how they operate. They do approach things more like an Italian club, where they'll be very decisive in their actions. They won't give managers 
time to work themselves out of a hole for fear of them digging an even deeper hole. And I think that's what's happened here. It's certainly what happened with, with Cisco. So there's some people saying, well, Cisco took seven points from his seven games and Ranieri's taken seven points from 14 games or I think it's 13 Premier League games. And that's fair enough. That's fair enough. You, you can try and make that point if you want. But that doesn't really factor in who they were playing against. So Cisco's seven games, they beat Villa on the opening day. They lost to Brighton, lost to Spurs, lost to Wolves. They beat Norwich and they drew at Newcastle. Claudio, on the other hand, has taken his points from Everton away, Manchester United at home, and another draw with Newcastle. And I would say that Claudio took his points in harder ways than Cisco did. You also look at the fact that you know his first game was Liverpool, and they got hammered. Played Southampton, Arsenal, Leicester, Chelsea, Manchester City, Brentford, West Ham, Spurs a second time, and and Norwich again. The, the Norwich one is very disappointing, especially the manner of the defeat. The scoreline, 3-0, is really disappointing when that's a relegation battle, especially when you'd beaten them earlier in the season. But this idea that Ranieri wasn't an upgrade on Cisco. I don't know how you can really come across that. Look, Cisco, his managerial experience pre-Watford was 11 games with Dinamo Tbilisi. That's what he'd done as a manager. 11 games with Dinamo Tbilisi. He's managing Huesca now back in Spain. They've won four of 14. So it's not like he's got this great track record or he's gone on to do great things since. He is just one of those ex-players who becomes a manager and he's middling. Like he's all right. He might be good in a few years. Right now, in the Premier League, he's out of his depth. He did a good job in the Championship, but I said it at the time that he got that job in the championship, and I'm going to repeat it now. I think Ivic or Ivic was doing a pretty good job when he got sacked. I don't know that they needed to make a big change at that time. They were fifth when they sacked him. Fifth. It wasn't like they were mid-table. They were fifth. And a couple of wins later, they were third after he was gone. Once Cisco took over, he won three in a row and then and went to third. Then he drew one and went to second, which will tell you. And then he lost one and went back to fifth. So after four games, he jumped three positions. And after the fifth game, he was back where he started. That will tell you just how tight the championship was at that point. So I don't know that the promotion last year wouldn't have been achieved 
without Cisco. I can't prove that it would, obviously. And I give him credit for managing the promotion. But all he really did was turn a couple of draws into a couple of extra wins across the back half of the season. Because it's not like things were going disastrously under Ivich. They'd lost 4 out of 20. They lost 5 out of 26 under Cisco. The difference was they'd drawn 7 out of 20. And they only drew 3 out of 26. On That's the only difference. They had a nil-nil draw, a 1-1, a 1-1, a 1-1, a nil-nil, a nil-nil. And a 1-1. Those were those draws. So you're looking to score, either score one more or concede one less. That's it. It's, it's such small margins. Such small margins. And Ivic had a much better track record than Cisco. I mean, this is a guy that did come in with a bit of pedigree. He'd done well with PAOK. He'd won the Greek Cup, which was a huge achievement for them. They would then go on and have more success off the back of what he'd done. Maccabee Tel Aviv, he won back-to-back Israeli Premier, League, uh, Premier Leagues. Like, he had a bit of pedigree. Funnily enough, he hasn't gone back into management yet. Whether that's because he's still getting paid by Watford or not, I don't know. But he had pedigree. They moved on from him. I didn't think Ranieri was the right appointment. I don't believe Ranieri's a great manager. I I think he's good, or he was at his peak. I think now... He's 70. I mean, he's 70. And he has been somewhat of an expert in failure through his career. Like, he's underachieved more often than not, bar that one amazing season with Leicester. And what happened the next season when he got sacked? And things didn't go great at Nantes. And they were a disaster at Fulham. He had a decent caretaker spell at Roma. But a below average spell at Sampdoria. There should have been red flags galore about Claudio when they appointed him. There really should. Especially coming on. Like, the fact that we'd seen this movie play out with Fulham where they bring him in after a couple of months, sacking a manager who'd got them promoted. We'd seen that before, and it didn't work. Forgetting everything else, the fact that he looked so lost in that relic. Claudio Ranieri's not the type of guy who works in relegation battles. It's just not his thing. What Claudio does is he's the type of manager, if you're finishing sixth in the league and you're wanting to finish fourth, or if you're finishing tenth and you want to finish sixth, 
Claudio then, he's the type of guy you can bring in. And that's where he works well. He works well on the margins. So he will find an extra couple of points here, a goal here, a way to keep more clean sheets here. And he will get you six to eight extra points across the course of a season. When you're a good team. He doesn't have a track record of working well in relegation situations. I mean, the only time he's really had to do it was at Fulham, and it was a mess. It was an absolute mess. So him not working out at Watford is no surprise. Now, it's also no surprise when you, again, go back and look at Watford, and you look at how many managers they've had, you look at how chaotic things are, how quick trigger they are. And then you look at the playing staff. And we've been over this before. There's some things that you can like about this squad. Like Ben Foster, I like. If he's my backup goalkeeper, I'm thrilled. If he's my starter, I'm, I'm looking for a new keeper. Jeremy Ngakia, I do like. I think he's got a lot of promise. Danny Rose is one to be sent away, far, far away. Peter Thibault is a solid player, good holding midfielder, good ball winner. Truce de Kong, not for me. Imran Luza, I really like. I think he's a very good ball player. I like Josh King. Tom Cleverley will be out the door. João Pedro, big, big talent. Adam Messina is a solid backup left back. The fact that he wears number 11 is, a, is an abomination. And I think Watford should be deducted points for having him wear the number 11. Ken Seema is not a Premier League caliber player. He's probably a nice guy. He works really hard. He's not a Premier League caliber player. Nicholas Nkulu was brought in as a panic buy or a panic signing. He became available on a free. They brought him in because they just left themselves sh so short at centre-back. And despite the fact that he's a few years past his best, he's still comfortably the best centre-back at the club. Um, although Samir is good that they brought in in January. But when Nkulu arrived, he was by far their best centre-back. I think they got, what's it, two games out of him? Was it two games? I think he played two games. I could be wrong. It could have been more. It could have been less. Uh... Hassan Kamara they brought in in January. He's he's a wing-back that needs to play in a back three. You've got to play a back three and let him play as a wing-back. That's how you'll get the best out of him. Craig Cathcart, the championship screams for Craig Cathcart to come on home and get back to his own level. Dan Gosling is the same. Ashley Fletcher is the same. O Ozan Tufan He's a talented player. I'm just not sure the Premier League is for him. Moses Sissoko, I've never, I've never been a fan of. I've just never been a fan of. He's been all right for them, but he wouldn't be one that I would look to sign. But, you know, he's there. He can play in the Premier League. There's no doubt about that. He just wouldn't be for me. Kiko Femenia, I'm not a big fan of, but he's an all right back. Right back. He, a decent backup to Ngakia. Samir is a good player. 
Again, he's better in a three than he is in a, in a, a back four. So play him on the left of a back three. Um, Ishmael Asar, I love. Emmanuel Dennis is tremendous. Daniel Bachman, as a third keeper, fine. As anything more than that, no thanks. I mean, Christian Cavaselli, how many times do we need to see the movie? Um, he wasn't good enough to be a Premier League defender the last time they were up. Why would anyone think he'd be good enough this time around? Uh, Chucho Hernandez, I really like. He's, he's super talented. Um, Francisco Serralta, I like him. He looks a player. He's got a nice aggressive nature to him. Yeah, I mean, he's one you could have in your, your defense. Juraj Kuka, no, not for me. Too old to play in this league as a as a new player to the league. You can't be signing 34-year-olds who've been in Serie A for the majority of the previous decade and think they're going to settle in. Unless they're a Pirlo or a striker, I'm just not having it. You can't, no, it's a, it's just a no. Quadro Ba, I mean, the poor fella hasn't gotten to kick a ball this year. Super talented, but we'll, we'll have to wait, till, excuse me, till next year before we see him. Uh, Rob Elliott, I have, um, I have a soft spot for Rob Elliott who spent far too much of his career as a backup. But at this point, he's a goalkeeping assistant. You know, you, you get him working with your goalkeeping coaches, but you don't have him as a registered player. No. Uh, and Edo Kayembe, the player they brought in, the, the midfielder they brought in, he's a good holding midfielder. So it, it's a decent squad, except at centre-back. You know, there's... Good options in midfield. Although I'm not a fan, Sissoko can do a job. Etibo is good. Loser is good. You know, you can get by, you know, Kiamba they brought in. That's a solid group. That's a good group of four. Um, you've got Ngaki at right back, a right wing back as it would be now. Um, Kamara at left wing back. That, that kind of thing works. Although, Hodgie's not playing with no wing backs. Hodgie's playing 4-4-2. So some of these signings that they've made might not make sense under the Hodge. Um, but the the thing is, again, it's going to be very hard. And I said this in the summer. So this is not me saying this with the benefit of hindsight. I said this in the summer. No club in the division has a central defensive group anywhere near as bad as Watford. And myself and Kevin DeVries have been doing transfer review podcasts, uh, transfer window review podcasts, since I want to say about 2015. And every single year that Watford were in the Premier League, we used to say Watford need to, needed to sign a centre-back, and they didn't. So we used to give them an F because they hadn't addressed their gaping needs at centre-back. And those needs are still there. And they're more prevalent than ever. Now, maybe you can patch something together if Nkulu can stay fit and you go with a back three with Sirialta, him and Samir. But at the same time, still not ideal. It's still not ideal. 
loads of attacking talent, a solid group of midfielders, centre-back, unacceptable, goalkeeper for me, unacceptable. It's very hard for anyone to come in and work in those situations. And with a guy like Claudio, who just isn't suited to that type of relegation scrap, it was never going to work. Now, Hodgson is like, this is what he does. Hodgson loves taking over a team in a relegation scrap. Nothing makes him happier. You give him a team at the top of the table, he'll find a way to get them into a relegation scrap just so he can tell you he kept them up. That was his master plan at Liverpool all along. Dragged them to the foot of the table, keep them up and say, look, I kept them in the division again. I'm a genius. He's not going to win you a lot of games. That's the first thing to know. Roy Hodgson is not going to win you a lot of football matches. But he is very, very good at plotting a season. And what I mean by that is he targets the games he thinks he can get points in. And in the other games, it's very simple. Just don't get hammered. Hodgson has an algorithm that he wants to work to, where across the course of a season, 38 games, Roy is aiming for somewhere in that 43 to 45 point range. He's aiming to finish somewhere between 12th and 15th. You're a very boring mid-table team, but you're in the division season after season. And if we look at Watford and we look at where they stand right now, they have played 20 games and taken 14 points. Now, that's not good enough. The, the fortunate thing for them is Norwich, Newcastle and Burnley have all been equally dreadful. But Hodgie's algorithm basically means what he wants is, let's say, 44 points out of a 38-game season. That's 1.15 points per game. Now, if he manages that at Watford over the next 18 games, they've got less. That's basically 21 points he'll be adding to their total. That'll get them to 35. And then the question is, is 35 points going to be enough to stay in the division this year? And I feel like the answer is probably yes. Now, I do think you'd maybe want a bit more of a cushion. So if he could stretch it out to about 37, I think they'd be safe enough. But I do think 35 might keep you in the division this year. It's not an exciting appointment. It really isn't. The football will not be good. This idea that he makes teams really good defensively is just not true. Just look at the goals goals against records of his teams across the past decade. But he does make them hard to beat. He does he does target games well. 
there's moments, brief, fleeting moments, moments though, where the Hodgson of old comes out and his teams do knock the ball about and play a decent bit of ball. Like, it's easy to forget, but if you go back to when Hodgson was manager of Switzerland, his teams played decent football. His Blackburn team played some decent football. They were garbage, but they played some decent football. He's worked under these people before as well. He worked with Udinese for six months back in 2001. So he knows what these owners are like. He's not walking in blind. If he can keep them up, it's that last great success of his career is how he'll view it. And he can ride off into the sunset. But that's that's what it has to be. It can only be keep us up and then go away. It can't be keep us up and then here's a two or three year contract. Watford can't tie themselves to Hodgson. This has got to be it. Keep us up and then here's the big bag of money. Go away. <sighs> I thought we'd seen the back of him, but he's back. And as much as I want to, I can't criticise the appointment because it kind of makes sense. It's kind of what Watford needs. As much as I think a Diego Martinez coming in there could be great if they were willing to commit to a long-term project. And by long-term, I'm only talking two and a half years. I'm not even saying, like, let's build out for five years. but Given how they operate, Hodgson till the end of the season makes sense. If he can plug the team into his, it's probably a typewriter rather than a computer, but if he can just imprint that idea of 44 points across the course of a season, meaning we need 20 or 21 between now and the end of the season, they could stay up. They could stay up. I'm going to take a quick break. When we come back, I have been meaning to do this for a while. We're sticking with the team of managers. But 4-4-2, well, they ranked the best managers in world football recently. And uh, I have some, some issues with it. So, yeah, we'll do that when we come back. We're also going to have a little quick laugh at Arsenal. So, see you in a minute. Right, welcome back. So, let's start with a small little chuckle at the Gunners. It is January 25th. Arsenal have been attempting to sign Dusan Vlahovic for over three weeks now. Lots of bluster in the media. Lots of shenanigans. Lots of lies. Lots of this, lots of that. The fact of the matter is they never came close to signing this player. They continually held talks with Fiorentina and never bothered to find out if the player wanted to join them. And their fans deludedly convinced themselves that we wouldn't waste time on a deal if the player wasn't interested. 
Well, there were multiple reports from well-placed journalists close to the player who said the most important thing for him is his development. So he wants to be able to trust the manager that he's playing under next. Once that came out, it was over. And that came out two weeks ago. But once I saw that, I knew they weren't getting because he wasn't going to go and play for Arteta. He simply wasn't going to go and play for Mikel Arteta. He was going to look to go and play for top managers. Now, I did think he would wait until the summer, as I said before. I thought he would be the runners-up prize in the Erling Haaland sweepstakes. All the clubs would be in for Haaland. The ones that didn't get him would then turn their attention to him. And he'd have great offers. But it looks like he is on his way to Juventus. It seems like Juventus have agreed a deal for about 65 to 70 million euro to bring Vlahovic to Turin following the path of Roberto Baggio, Federico Bernadeschi, and most recently Federico Chiesa. He will score a ton of goals for Juve. And Juve can build their team around him and Chiesa when he comes back from his ACL tear and Kulisevsky as potentially a front three that can dominate Syria and maybe even Europe for years to come. There's still question marks over Dybala. If he sticks around, oh, Kulisevsky, Dybala and Chiesa behind Flavic. That's a hell of an attack. That's a hell of an attack. If they can keep Dybala, that's going to be sensational. Even if they don't, I think it'll be great. But, you know, this is the difference between a club like Arsenal still trying to find their way with spoofers in, in important positions and a club like Juventus who just know what it is to be a big club. Arsenal spend over three weeks pricking about. Juventus come in. Bish, bash, bosh, deal done. That's our player and away we go. Uh, David Ornstein reported yesterday that Arsenal have looked at other targets and one of them is Alexander Isak. Now he says, and I quote, he's an attractive target because he has a buyout clause. Now I'm going to interject here. His buyout clause is 85 million euro. You are offering 65 million euro for Vlahovic. This is 20 million euro more for your backup target. Now, anytime you're spending more money on your backup target than your primary target, you've got to ask yourself, have I made a mistake here? Ornstein went on to say, Arsenal, according to the people I've spoken to, would like to negotiate a lower fee. Well, of course they would. Every team looking to buy a player would like to negotiate a lower fee. But Real Sociedad have absolutely no reason to negotiate a lower fee. Real Sociedad are completely within their rights to just say no. We'll hang on to him because, well, he's our player and we want to keep him. So... They bought him in 2019 
And at that time, a buyback clause was put into his contract, which allowed Borussia Dortmund to buy him back, I believe, for about 15 million euro. Last summer, after his impressive showing at the Euros, Sociedad paid Dortmund to buy out that buyback clause. And they gave him a big new contract with a big new buyout clause. Why would they, less than a year later, agree to accept a lower fee than the buyout clause? It just doesn't make any sense. This is a club currently attempting to make it into the Champions League. Uh, I believe they're sixth in the table, two points outside the top four. And considering Real Betis are in third and probably aren't the most reliable team over the course of a season, there's a real chance they could make it in. Atletico Madrid have been poor this season. Barcelona have been awful this season. Betis, though they've been very good, do have a propensity to just throw things away late on. Real Sociedad could well get into the top four again this season, get into the Champions League, and and go forward from there. And they will want their best players to help them do that. And one of their best players is Alexander Isak. And this is a good team that they've been putting together. You know, take a look at that team. Romero's a solid keeper. Zubimendi's a really good midfielder. Zubeldi is another really good midfielder. Moreno's another really good midfielder. David Silva. Mikel Yarzabal. Like, I don't see them being in a rush to just let Isak go. I know they've got Alex Sorlot. Uh, in on loan from Leipzig, but that's not a reason to let Isak go. There's no reason to let him go for le- unless Arsenal paid the buyout clause, especially this month. So it, it makes no sense to me. Arsenal have basically just wasted this month so far. It remains to be seen if they can turn it around, but I don't have any faith in them. I saw somebody say that Edu is the best deal-maker the club have had since David Dean. And I began to wonder what on earth this man was talking about because when you look at the deals he's made, I mean, where's the real value that they found? They overpaid for Ramsdale. They overpaid for Ben White. They paid exactly what Lille wanted for Gabriel, exactly what Bologna wanted for Tomiyasu, exactly what Real Madrid wanted for Odegaard. I mean, where's the value here? What deals is he striking other than just agreeing to what the seller wants? The strange thing. Strange thing. Um... They have Arsenal apparently have been offered Luka Jovic, so could that be 
something that they do. I think he would make sense for them. Uh, if he can ever get back to his best level, it's certainly possible. We have an update on the Everton managerial search from Alan Myers. Uh, Pereira, Vitor Pereira, to have further discussions in the next two days following initial talks with Mashiri. No contact with Wayne Rooney. Uh, the Belgian FA have refused to allow Roberto Martinez to take control. And Frank Lampard is to be interviewed. Um, it, it baffles me that people are immediately in the replies. Oh, Lampard for me, Alan. Like, did you not watch what happened to him at Chelsea? Did you not watch Chelsea play under him? Got to be Lampard for me and we have to get him in ASAP. It has to be Lampard. After much consideration, I have decided we should appoint Lampard. We're all firmly in the Lampard camp then. Like, these people are mental. He's not a good manager. There's no evidence that he's a good manager. The only evidence there is on Frank Lampard's managerial career is that if his name wasn't Frank Lampard, he would not have had a single job. Simple as that. He would not have had a single job. He gets loads of credit for what he did at Derby. And what he did at Derby was finish sixth. And what Derby did the season before he took over was finish sixth. Like, he didn't improve Derby. He just didn't. But he spent quite a bit of money. He brought in players on big old wages. You think Ashley Cole was there for free? You think Mason Mount, Harry Wilson, Fikayo Tamora and Andy King, Premier League players on Premier League money, took pay cuts to join? No, you were paying all of that money. Brought in all of those players. Spent loads of money. And finished in the same spot they did the year before. And got dumped out of the playoffs in the final when you bottled it against Villa, who you should have beaten. So, you know, he went to Chelsea, who'd finished third and won the Europa League. He finished fourth, bottled an FA Cup final against Arteta. And he got praised for a great season. Like, he basically got praised because they didn't regress as much as people expect them to under him. Then he spent a buttload of money. And then he had them in ninth. And he got sacked. Frank Lampard's not a good manager. He just isn't. He's trading on what he did as a player and the fact that Harry Redknapp is his uncle and friends at Mel Morris. Mel Morris wants to be the big fancy football owner, doesn't actually know anything about football, and listen to... Imagine taking advice from Harry Redknapp, a man who played... And, and not... Be careful what you say here, David. 
Harry Redknapp is the reason Portsmouth nearly went out of business. You taking advice on how to run your football club from Harry Redknapp for? Now look at you. Clowns. Clowns. All of them clowns. Right. 4-4-2. I saw this when it came out. It bothered me. It's bothered me since. It's taken me till now to address it. The 50 best managers in the world, according to 442 magazine. Pep Guardiola is one. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to get any complaints from me. I don't think he's one, but I think there's a group of four, and he's one of them. But if you haven't won, I'm not going to argue it. Uh, two, they've got, well, they've got Thomas Tuchel. Uh, that's obviously off the back of him winning a Champions League. That's too high. He's not one of the four. He's in the the next group behind it. Uh, Klopp is three again. He's in that. He's in the group of four. So I'm not. I'm not going to argue. Conte is four. Again, he's in the group of four. So I'm not arguing. Hansi Flick is fifth. Uh, I think he's probably in this kind of fifth to eighth range, uh, along with the likes of Thomas Tuchel. But certainly, uh, there's somebody who should be ahead of him. Uh, Roberto Mancini. Right. Won a European championship. He's a good manager. And I could see a claim for him being ninth or tenth, but he's certainly not sixth. Uh, Diego Simeone, he's the fourth of the four. He should be higher on this list. Uh, Julian Nagelsmann, he hasn't won anything, so not really sure why he's so high. Very promising manager, but certainly shouldn't be this high yet. Garrett Southgate is ninth. Garrett Southgate. A man who has, as international manager, won nothing. Uh, bottled big games, made bizarre decisions in big games, and at club level, a club spell, by the way, that represents the majority of his managerial games, he was a complete failure. He's managed 256 games in his career. 151 of them came at Middlesbrough. He lost 63 of them, won only 45 for 29.8% win ratio. He managed 37 games at the England under 21 level. And he's managed 68 games at senior level. And yet, somehow, this man is number nine. Uh, Maurizio Pochettino is 10. Not really sure how. Casper uh, Humland of the Danish national team is 11th. That's very high, rather aggressive. I know they had a good Euros, but still. Uh, Eric Ten Hag is 12. I think he's a little bit low. Unai Emery is 13th. Guy can't win an away game. Save his life, but 13th he is. Large, now, he's better than... Now, let's be fair... He's better than Southgate, and he has won three Europa Leagues, but still, that's a little bit high. Uh, Jean-Pierre Gasparini is 14. Marco Rose is 15. That's a little bit high. 
David Moyes is 16. I think based on the last two seasons and his, life, his time at Everton, that's it's maybe still a little bit high, but fair enough. Uh, Stephen Gerrard is 16. Because he won one Scottish Premier League. There's no number 17, apparently. They've just done away with the number 17. Marcelo Bielsa is 18. Ralph Ranić is 19. Hadn't really managed in a decade. Is top 20 too high for a manager who spent much of the last decade as a sporting director and not in the dugout? Well, no. Ranić's legendary reputation precedes him. The godfather of gegenpressing has already found a shape that suits Manchester United much more than the one they had. And with his development of young players, the Red Devils look to be in good hands right now. Who wrote this? Julian Lupetegui, a really good manager, is 20. It should be much higher. Lionel Scaloni, Argentina national manager, uh, obviously won the, the Copa America. He's next. He's never done any other managerial job than this one. Uh, this is literally his, his only job. You'll remember him. He played for West Ham. Uh, he was a fairly run-of-the-mill right back. Solid, solid citizen, but, you know. Uh, he's 21. Based on one job. Stefano Pioli's 22 AC Milan manager. Carlo Ancelotti is 23. Now, I know that you can say that Bayern didn't end well and Napoli didn't end well and he walked out on Everton after mid-seat, mid-table finishes. That's fine. But you better believe I'm going to remind you that this man, not anybody else, this guy has won three Champions Leagues. That this man has won League titles with AC Milan, with Chelsea, and with Paris Saint-Germain, and with Bayern Munich. He's likely going to win the La Liga title this year with Real Madrid. And that will, I believe, make him the first manager to win league titles in all five of the big five leagues. And you're going to tell me he's 23 and Garrett Southgate is nine. The Brodge is 24, Brendan Rodgers. Now, that's about right, okay? That's about right, maybe even a little bit high. However, how is Steven Gerrard ahead of Brendan Rodgers? Brendan Rodgers did far better in Scotland than Steven Gerrard. Brendan Rodgers has done... Look, on the outside, two fifth-place finishes with Leicester in an FA Cup. In, in 25 years, you'll look back on that and go, oh, that's not bad. That's pretty good. You'll forget the fact that they bottled those top five, uh, top four finishes. Unless you're weird like, you know, well, me and the people that listen to me. But people will look back on that and say that's quite good. Gerard's done nothing in the game as a manager. Uh, Louis Enrique, who, who won a treble with Barcelona... Uh, he's 25th, again, below the likes of Southgate. Uh, Didier Deschamps, 
Now, I'm not a big Deschamps fan, but that man won a World Cup and you're having Gareth Southgate ahead of him. Simone Inzaghi did a great job with Lazio for a number of years and he's below a bunch of lads that couldn't tie his tie for him. Zinedine Zidane, three-time Champions League winner, left, came back, won La Liga, left again. And he's below Steven Gerrard and Brendan Rodgers and Garrett Southgate, Lionel Scaloni. This list is hilarious. Maurizio Sarri. Sarri almost became a parody of himself in the final days at Juventus. This is just such nonsense. Mikel Arteta. Lego head. 30th. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me with this? Mikel Arteta is not in the top 50 managers in the world. And you've got him at 30. Ahead of Max Allegri who's won five Serie A titles, got to two Champions League finals, and he's bringing up the rear behind Arteta, who's finished eighth in back-to-back Premier League seasons. Graham Potter is 32. Christian Strike, 33. I guarantee you half the people that were involved in this list had never even heard of him. What he's done at Freiburg is sensational. Absolutely sensational he deserves a bigger job but he loves where he is Marcelo Gallardo of River Plate he's done very well there I think 34 is about fair considering it's hard to really judge when a manager hasn't come to Europe yet uh, Tite I'm not a I'm not a fan I'm not a fan he's the Brazil manager I don't like what, what I see Luciano Spalletti I mean you know if you if you want Crushing disappointment. This is your guy, Christopher uh, Christophe Galtier, just won the French league with Lille, and he's in thirty seventh, way behind the likes of Southgate. Urs Fischer of Union Berlin, he's done a great job there. I think that's probably a little bit high. Steve Clark. I get he's done a good job at Scott with Scotland. I get he did a good job with Kilmarnock. But are we going to forget that he failed at Reading, that he failed at West Brom? Are, are we going to try and whitewash these things from his managerial career? It's half his managerial career is failure. So I'm I'm not having Steve Clark that high. He's not a top fifty manager. Uh, Thomas Frank is fortieth. I think that's too high. Uh, Giovanni Van Bronckhorst now at Rangers is forty first. He did really good work at Feyenoord. Uh, he did not do good work with Guangzhou. And it started all right at Rangers, so we'll give him time. But 41st is far too high. Ivan Juric, I think he is secretly starting a cult. I think that's what the whole thing is about. Um, It's hard to know how to judge him. His teams play really good football. Hellas Verona played wonderful football under him. 
but he doesn't win a lot of games. And for me, he's not a top 50 manager. Uh, Vieira at 43. Nobody's been a bigger fan of Vieira this season than me, but he's not 43. Bruno Lage at 44. I think that's low, but he doesn't have a huge amount of experience, so I'll, I'll accept it. But Steven Gerrard has done nothing that Bruno Lage hasn't done. I don't know how Steven Gerrard can be so high and Bruno Lage can be so low, considering Lage has, you know, won a Portuguese title much harder to win than a Scottish title. And he's done such an outstanding job at Wolves, whereas Gerard's so, job so far has been okay. Uh, Robert De Zerbi, a very, very exciting manager. Again, his teams don't win enough games. But, you know, at Shakhtar, thus far, things look to be going well. He's a very, very attack-minded manager. Uh, how are Shakhtar doing this season, actually? Who is who is where in the... Shakhtar are top of the Ukrainian League. Two points clear of Dino Kiev. 18 games played each. And they play 30 games or 12 games left. So, yeah, could well win the league. Uh, Marcelino. He did a very good job at Villarreal, I think it was, a couple of years back. Not so good a job at Valencia. But he's doing very, very well at Bilbao. Very defensive-minded, but, you know, a good coach. Uh, Rafa Benitez, 47. Given the career, I think that's fair enough. Sean Dyche, 48. He's better than a bunch of people ahead of him. Uh, Jamal Balmedi, the Algerian manager. Uh, obviously, Algeria won the AFCON last time out. Uh, he has previously managed Qatar and two Qatari club teams. And uh, he, look, he's, he's, he wins 66% of his games. I don't know that it's all that impressive, but it is what it is. And uh, number 50, Xavi. So, this list was put together on the 23rd of December 2021. Ruben Amorin, who won the Portuguese League last season, nowhere to be seen in the top 50. Jorge Jesus, who's won a bunch of stuff nowhere to be seen in the top 50 Sergio Conceição who's won a bunch of league titles well a couple of league titles nowhere to be seen in the top I, am I missing something here like has this guy just gone right it's Premier League and then you know some internationals and then we'll just put a bunch of obscure guys in and we'll fill it out like what is this Crap. This is awful. Ruben Amorim should be, like, first of all, he should be higher than Gerard. Like, he just should. Portuguese League is much harder to win than the Scottish League. Uh, Brendan Rodgers should be higher. Gerard's far too high. Southgate is a joke that high. What a mess. What an absolute mess. 
Hang your heads in shame, 442, for publishing this tripe. This is awful. Genuinely awful. We'll finish up with the gossip and we're done for today. Uh, Liverpool, sorry, sorry, Aston Villa and former Aston Villa boss and former Liverpool captain Steven Gerrard is interested in Joe Gomez. That's not news. We've known that for a while. Manchester United were among the clubs who scouted Luis Diaz at the weekend. I bet they weren't. Manchester United are stepping up their search for a new manager with Pochettino, Ten Hag, Luis Enrique and Lupetegui all under consideration, so say the Athletic. It's going to be Pochettino. It just is. They've been obsessed with him for years. Newcastle are interested in Jesse Lingard and Yves Basuma. Yves Basuma is not going to Newcastle to take part in a relegation scrap. Nice are also tempted to make an offer for Lingard. He was linked with Lille when Galtier was there. That could make sense. Um, and he definitely enjoyed the lifetime, or the, the, the lifestyle. Uh, Newcastle have opened talks over signing Delhi Ali on loan from Tottenham. Say no, Delhi. Demand to go abroad. Bayern Munich are interested in Andreas Christensen after Nicholas Sewell rejected an offer to extend his contract. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, Liverpool and Manchester City have held talks about signing Cody Gakbo from PSV Eindhoven. Uh, Serbia striker Dusan Vlavic has told Fiorentini he wants to join Juventus. Arsenal are considering Alexander Isak, Jonathan David and Dominic Calvert-Lewin as their hopes of landing Vlahovic fade. They never had any real hope. It was fa uh, false hope. Of that list, Calvert-Lewin is the most ready to go. He'd also be a pain in the backside to get out of Everton this month. David's probably the easiest one to sign and the cheapest. And I kind of feel like he's the one that long term will fit what they want, what they want to do the best. Uh, the Gunners, though, will have to meet a £70 million, which is about €85 million euro release clause if they want to sign Isak before next Monday's transfer deadline. Uh, Arteta is a big fan of Calvert-Lewin, but any attempt to sign him will not be made until the summer. Six European clubs are interested in Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. Aubameyang has made it clear he's not interested in moving to Saudi Arabia. Good for him. Uh, Tottenham are confident. I don't mean good for him as in... I, I just mean he should stay in Europe because he's still good enough. Nothing against Saudi Arabia as a country, obviously. Um, Tottenham are confident of completing the signing of Adama Traore. Alistair Gold, who's the best in the business on Spurs, has come out and said they haven't really made a move from yet. Tottenham have opened talks with Angiers over 18-year-old French forward Mohamed Ali Cho. Uh, he's meant to be absolutely outstanding. Uh, Spurs have also inquired about 25-year-old Fiorentina midfielder Sofiane Amrabat, who is playing for Morocco. Does he improve Tottenham at all? I don't feel like he improves Spurs even in the slightest. He hasn't been good for Fiorentina. He really hasn't. He was good for Hellas Verona on loan, but he, he hasn't been good for, for Fiorentina. Hmm. The lesser talented Amrabat brother. Uh, Bayern Munich have been in contact with the agent of Frankie de Jong in a bid to 
beat Chelsea, City and PSG to his signature. Borussia Dortmund have opened talks with Red Bull Salzburg over a potential £40 million deal for Kareem Adeyemi. He's had links from everywhere, but that's probably the move that makes the most sense. And lastly, Ajax left-back Nicolas Tagliafico, who has been linked with Barcelona, sorry, with, with Aston Villa, Chelsea, Marseille and Napoli, has asked his agents to hold club talks with other clubs as Barcelona tried to sign him on loan with an option to buy. So he's made it clear that's where he wants to go. And that is me for today, folks. Thank you, as always. I will see you tomorrow. Goodbye. Podcast Network.